Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Rebecca Sipis to talk uh, to her about her forthcoming book, Women and Musical Salons in the Enlightenment, out May 2022 with the University of Chicago Press. Dr. Sipis is a musicologist, an historical keyboardist, and the Associate Dean of Academic Affairs at the Mason Gross School of Arts at Rutgers University. Hello, Rebecca, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. Um, So how are you today? Is it spring in New Jersey? It is spring, but it's sort of a cold and rainy day today. So looking forward to warmer weather soon. It's on its way. All right. Okay, before we go any further, I need some explanation on what it means to be an historical keyboardist. Uh, Okay, yes. So I'm a performer. Um, I've trained on um, keyboard instruments that were used in the 17th and 18th centuries primarily. Um, And I use these in my research. So in thinking about the experience, um, for example, of women and musical salons in the 18th century, um, I want to try to understand their experience from an insider perspective as much as possible. Um, And one of the ways that I have done that is by using, you know, historical keyboards, including harpsichords and early pianos, um, sort of the, the grandfathers or grandmothers, if you will, of the modern piano, the kind of Steinway piano that, that most people are used to seeing in concert halls today, um, to think about the kinds of performance practices that they used, um, their approach to music, um, how these instruments foster the sense of sociability that was so important in salons in the 18th century. Um, so in thinking through some of the practical uh, problems, issues, things that you need to work around when dealing with historical instruments, I think I've been able to get a kind of interesting new perspective on the ways that these women um, fostered musical sociability. So you feel that like your work as a performer really feeds into your work as a musicologist and there's a dialectic there. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I see performance as one of the tools, certainly not the only tool that I can use um, to get at the past um, as a as a musicologist. And do you have you play with an ensemble? Yes. Yes, I'm very fortunate to have some really fabulous collaborators um, here in the sort of New York to Philadelphia area. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, I started working with them on musical salon practices back in 2014, um, when I was first um, sort of encountering and and thinking about music in the salon of the Jewish Berlin-based salon hostess, Sarah Levy. Um, So with a group of very, you know, open-minded and interesting and eager collaborators, um, I put together a program of music from her salon. um, And we later recorded that and had to think of a name for our group. So um, we called ourselves the Raritan Players after the the river that runs by New Brunswick, New Jersey, um, in the historic Raritan Valley here. Wonderful. All right. So in these instruments, are they wildly, widely available? I mean, is there something you've had to work on? Uh, how do you how did you come upon like historical instruments? Right. Some some of both. Um, so for this book, um, actually, there is a there's a companion website that includes audio examples um, for people who 
don't read music score or can't look at a music score and sort of hear the music in their head, which I think is quite common. Um, you know, we've, we've included on a companion website hosted by the University of Chicago Press, um, I've, I've created a, a website with audio examples that accompany each of the um, kind of score examples that appear in the book. Um, so for those audio examples, um, and indeed for um, a set of recordings that I've um, produced with this group and and issued separately, you know, on the on the ACES label, um, I've used a set of historical instruments, including um, lar- a large double manual harpsichord, two keyboard harpsichord, um, a Viennese style. Um, Forte piano, a sort of early early piano um, of the sort that Mozart, for example, would have known. And in addition, I've been very, very fortunate to have access to an original 1780 square piano built. I know it's it's miraculous. Oh. Um, an original piano built in London um, by essentially the most popular and innovative um, keyboard builder in London at the time. He was a German immigrant named Johannes Zumpe, or Zumpe, as he came to be known, Z-U-M-P-E. And um, this instrument was restored in the 1990s by um, an instrument builder named Tim Hamilton here in the United States. Um, And it's on loan to me um, from a, a, a person named Leslie Martin, Who's, um, who's been very, very generous in allowing me to sort of babysit this instrument and use it for my projects. Um, so actually, I write about the in, that instrument in particular rather extensively in the book um, because it is a very unusual instrument to have in good playing condition. I think mm-hmm. from as early as 1780, um, there are really a very, very small number of instruments of that sort that are that are still usable and and uh, useful in performance. Um, so the and the experience of playing that instrument is really quite different from that larger um, mm-hmm. early piano of the sort that Mozart and the Viennese would have known. Um, this is an instrument. The square piano was it was popular in London and in Paris, um, which were the kind of um, what glittering musical scenes in in Europe um, at that point? Vienna was in many ways still kind of a backwater, imitating mm-hmm. other um, musical centers um, like Naples. Uh, so, um, so these square pianos were brought. They became very popular in London and in Paris, um, including in salons. And some of the salon hostesses um, and uh, performers whom I write about in the book and composers, women composers whom I write about in the book, um, advocated for the use of these square pianos um, as early as the 1760s, um, so long before they became very widespread. So they were re- these women were really forward thinking in adopting this instrument. That is fascinating. And I really think it's interesting. I think our reader, our, our listeners should appreciate what kind of very unique perspective you're able to bring on this into this work. That's fascinating. Um, it also just sounds really cool. I'm guessing that, like, you just well, of like, of course I agree. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm guessing this is like something you just fully geek out on too. And just absolutely. like, absolutely love doing absolutely. this. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. What, what this, that instrument does, I'll just wax rhapsodic about it for another another minute, um, what that instrument does is it really opens a whole sound world that is just not available on other mm-hmm. types of keyboard yeah. instruments, and especially, I think, on the modern piano. You know, the modern piano is really built for 
large concert halls. It was made to be loud and powerful. And, you know, the, the sound what needed to be able to cut through an orchestra of very large proportions. Mm-hmm. Um, and these these square pianos, you know, they they also have they can have a very big sound and they can kind of accommodate a really muscular technique. But um, but in addition, they also have the capacity to sound like a harp or to sound even like the Aeolian harp, right? That kind of mythic folk-like instrument that seems to emerge from nature. Um, That was the theory about it anyway, that it it sort of was this completely natural instrument. Of course, the technology was actually quite advanced. So there's this really interesting tension between the natural or the pastoral and Mm -hmm. this, you know, advanced technology, um, which is also something that I discuss in the book. Um, But you know, the, the, for example, the songs of one of the salon hostesses that I write about, she was a, a composer and a keyboardist named Madame Brion, um, Anne-Louise Brion. Um, so she wrote these songs that are very little known today, but that she would have played in her salon um, together with her daughters who, who could play keyboard instruments and also sing. Um, and in these songs, she writes these really lush you know, arpeggiated figures that just sound like a harp. And using this instrument, you really get that sense in a way that you just can't get on other types of instruments. There are these pedals that make the sound just all wash together, almost like a watercolor painting. Um, And it's just a beautiful, I think a beautiful sound that is really, um, really unique. Wow, that's great. so before we get right into um, Madame Brion, so your your previous publications, I'm looking at Sarah Levy's World, <clears throat> Gender Judaism and the and uh, the Baroque Tradition in Enlightenment Berlin. Um, that's Rochester Press, 2018, and Curious in Modern Inventions, Instrumental Instrumental Music is Discovery in Gallows, Italy, Chicago, 2016. Showed this like long standing interest in music, like science and enlightenment, how these things go together, and gender. So I see, I'm seeing the precedents for this current work. What am, like, what am I not seeing? Tell me how you, how it is exactly you came to this. What made sure. you enjoy this book? Yeah, I mean, in many ways, the the you're, you're right that the that all these uh, pieces of work sort of um, well, they what they emerged just from my my own sense of curiosity. Like I I want to pursue topics as far as I can, um, and. The, at the same time, the the Galileo uh, project, right, is is about a very very different um, period, a very different um, kind of musical repertoire um, and set of performance practices. But uh, although, right, it still is sort of at the at the border. That work is really at the border between musicology and the history of science. Mm-hmm. Um, this uh, interest, my interest in salons, really emerged from that project on Sarah Levy, uh, as I mentioned before. Um, I had the great good fortune to meet a colleague here at Rutgers, um, Nancy Sinkoff, whom uh, I met, right, I met her when I first arrived in mm-hmm. 2012 and um, mentioned to her that I was sort of interested in pursuing this figure, Sarah Levy, and maybe maybe giving a little concert uh, of music that came from her collection. Um, and Nancy um, was wonderful in saying, no, no, we should not, uh, you shouldn't just stop at a concert, we should really make a big deal out of this woman, um, who was very little understood, I think. Um, you know, there had been a, there had been some work done on her by scholars um, of the Bach tradition because she was a sort of important link in transmitting mm-hmm. Bach's music to her um, 
her great nephew, Felix Mendelssohn. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, thinking about uh, how this music functioned in her in her world, in her life, placing her at the center of the story and thinking about the way that she um, intersected with, um, you know, Jewish culture and musical culture and enlightenment culture and how her subject subjectivity as a woman and as a Jewish person um, sort of influenced the way that she functioned in the world. That was a, a position that we felt we could take that was that was quite new. So that's an edited volume. It's a collection of essays by um, musicologists and scholars of um, of Jewish studies, um, history, and philosophy. Um, sort of thinking about um, you know what it what it, what it looks like to place Sarah Levy at the center of that story. So that in turn served as a springboard for thinking about some of these other women who appear in this in this new book. Um, Sarah Levy is one of them. There's a chapter devoted to her in this book. Um, but in addition, I'm trying to place, you know, place her alongside um, and on equal footing with um, other salonier, salon hostesses who had really special musical interests, um, including Madame Brion, but also Mariana Martinez, who was a salonier in Vienna. Um, uh, even the, the painter Angelica Kaufmann or Angelica Kaufmann, um, who, uh, spent a lot of her career in London, but then when she returned to Rome in the 1780s, she started hosting a salon there that featured music very prominently, and she was herself a very musical person. Um, and also the Philadelphia salon hostess, um, Elizabeth Graham, um, who in the 1760s uh, hosted a salon um, where music was apparently um, featured again prominently. Um, she owned a harpsichord. She sort of traveled in very musical circles. Um, and we have evidence from her, some of her manuscripts that have been um, not really fully explored in the past um, of her interest in music. So, um, you know, the, the beginning of the book sort of thinks about salons across, musical salons across Europe and America um, between about 1760 and 1800, um, and it so it, it raises a whole a whole cast of characters um, whom I really enjoyed getting to know and sort of starting to think about um, from a figure like Anne Ford in uh, in England in the 1760s, um, you know, through the the Countess Duchess of Osuna y Benavente in Madrid, um, who again her family also was very musical and she amassed a huge collection of music. Um, so there, there are really these, you know, figures still, I think, very, very much shrouded in, um, in mystery and are, you know, waiting to be explored and discovered. Um, so I, I do a little exposition of the, the issues related to musical salons, um, including the, the kind of the, the gendered subjectivity of the salon hostess, the way that the salon functioned as a site of women's education, um, the way that it uh, it allowed women to exercise agency um, and influence their cultural environments. Um, and then the second chapter is about some of those performance practices that, that were used in salons. And then chapters three through seven are um, sort of close readings of salons hosted by those five women whom I mentioned mm -hmm. previously. So um, I think um, let's talk right off the bat about salons right sure. in general. And I think that uh, most of our listeners, me included, I'm, I'm familiar with this concept, but I always think of them as space for conversation as these very um, <clears throat> kind of 
unenjoyable. Uh, that's probably a bit much, but just <laughs> very like dry intellectual conversation spaces. And you paint a very different portrait of a salon, like a musical salon. Right. So can you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah. So um, I think that they were not really dry spaces. I think that, that you know, it, sometimes we think of them that way, maybe because um, we think of them as as sort of cultivating a very stilted kind of conversation or mm-hmm. mannered kind of yeah. conversation. Um, but that's, I think that that's not how they were seen at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so a salon was actually the term itself was used in the 18th century predominantly to describe a room, right? A parlor or a salon. And we've come to apply this later terminology of the salon, um, which was really applied this way in the, in the 19th century backwards onto the 18th century. But in the 18th century, these gatherings that took place in the salon would have been called an assembly or a conversazione or a rout or a roulade or, right, there's any number of of terms that were used to describe them. But they were essentially a regular, often weekly gathering um, of a very diverse range of people um, starting, you know, in the, again, in the, in the second half of the 18th century, they could be hosted. They were most often hosted by an upper class woman, um, someone who had the financial means to welcome guests into her home so regularly, often feeding them, among other things. Right. So there's there's sort of um, financial expectations mm-hmm. um, associated with that. But at the same time, this was also the age when professional musicians um again, very often women, could start hosting salons um, and imitating that upper-class behavior because their education or their you know, polite manners could stand instead of aristocratic birth. Um, and so they, they could also function as salon hostesses starting in this period. So, you know, the, the hostess would welcome into her home um, friends and acquaintances, professional class artists and musicians um, and, and, you know, philosophers or right, philosophers or intellectuals, mm-hmm. scientists, um, as well as other members of the upper class, the aristocracy. So there is a kind of mix of, um, of social class and um, sort of pl- place in, in society mm-hmm that's happening in these salons. And there's a mixture of, um, you know, kind of mixing of values and norms also happening. Um, And so, you know, the the salon hostess would be responsible for um, kind of setting the agenda of these gatherings um, and uh, coordinating or or governing, right, to use the the term of um, historian Dina Goodman, governing the proceedings of the salon. So if the salon hostess had a strong interest in music and had, you know, instruments, for example, in her home or had the means to pay for professional musicians to come and play either by themselves or with her in her home, um, then music could become an important part of the salon proceedings. Um, So, for example, we know, you know, that when when the Mozart family traveled across Europe, when Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was quite young, um, you know, his uh, his father ensured that they stopped at some of the most fashionable salons in Paris, for example, mm-hmm. where Madame Geoffrin, one of the leading salon hostesses of the day, welcomed the family. Now, Madame Geoffrin herself did not have a strong background in music, but she was still an arbiter of taste. Um, And she would later help the Mozart family kind of get established. But then simultaneously, you have women like Madame Brion, 
um, who were very musical um, and who hosted in her salon the same kind of mix of artists and intellectuals and professionals and amateurs and um, and everybody kind of gathering together. Um, so, for example, we know that Benjamin Franklin spent a lot of time in her salon when he was her neighbor in Paris um, between 1777 and 85. Right. He was there. Um, as ambassador of the newly formed United States. Um, but and, and he was very interested in music. We know he, he enjoyed music, especially if you think about his invention of the glass harmonica or sort of re, reconfiguration of the glass harmonica, which became a very widely popular um, instrument. But he did not like going to the public opera or the concert hall. So he described Madame Brion's home as his opera. I call this my opera. Or I, you know, I hate, I can't remember the, the wording precisely, but I, I, I hate going to the opera at Paris. And he would go there. He describes um, being entertained by Madame Brion and her daughters, and also by the professional violinist, Noël Pagin, who used to hang out there. Um, and he would have a dish of tea and a game of chess and some music. Um, and so the the environment could be very, um, you know, for all of it, for all of the stilted conversation and mannered conversation, the environment could still be very relaxed. Um, and, um, you know, I think that the, the fact that Benjamin Franklin gave Madame Brion a glass harmonica and he actually described um, playing it with her in heaven, right? One day they would both be dead and in heaven and he would play the glass harmonica with her. That actually shows that that spirit of kind of mixing of, you know, very experienced mm -hmm. musicians with, um, with very inexperienced musicians, um, that, that that was something that probably happened in her home as well. Um, yeah. So this, <clears throat> the salon, as you describe it though, this space really makes us kind of, um, expand our ideas about what the Enlightenment looked like, mm. right? What the intellectual um, milieu of this period is. It's not some. It's not someone talking about Enlightenment philosophers alone, right? It's the right. space for enjoyment and interaction, and it's a much yes. more dynamic Enlightenment that you describe. So I, you know, I think that one of the key aspects of Enlightenment thought is the idea of sympathy, the idea that through sociability. Um, through interaction with other people, um, we gain a better understanding of um, their perspectives. We learn to put ourselves in another person's shoes. So this, for example, is a, a theory that's espoused by Adam Smith, by David Hume, um, and they actually write about um, the, you know, this, this new phenomenon where people of both sexes are uh, are mixing with each other and conversing and meeting in comfort and in leisure and in this very sociable way. And this helps to advance the cause of sympathy, um, that it can actually make us understand other people better. Um, and this is something that the that could not really take place in 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 academies, for example, in these in these um, more homogeneous environments, um, the heterogeneous heterosocial environment where women and men of different social standings and different backgrounds could mix was actually, I think, a key to um, enacting this enlightenment value of sympathy. Um, so that's something that Salonier, that women uh, specifically, mm -hmm. could bring to the table, um, to the project of enlightenment that was really not possible 
in the men, the men only environment of the philosophical academy. Right. I, uh, I get this. Um, so you, you've written, you, as you mentioned, you write about these a few women in particular, and each of them explores a theme, right? And so we've talked a good deal about Madame Brion. Let's go on with her. So how does she and her salon lead you to an exploration of authorship? Sure. Yeah, this is she's a fascinating case. Um, you know, yes, she was an author. Um, she wrote extensively um, and she was a composer of music. She composed extensively, but she never published her work um, and never sought to publish her work. So I think there's been this understanding of Madame Brion in the past that, you know, she was a kind of not very talented amateur um, both in writing and in musical composition. Um, and I, again, I think that that requires some reassessment, which is one of the things that I try to do in the book. Um, the fact that she never published her her book, her sorry, her, her writings or her music reflects her understanding of herself as an upper class woman who had to kind of adhere to social norms of privacy um, and um, even of what, I, what I'm calling a poetics of the ephemeral. So even though she's writing down certain aspects of her, of her work and her musical compositions, um, she is not intending these things to be kind of judged after the fact and, and held up against you know, models of composition that would enter the public sphere in a, in a kind of more, um, uh, what, uh, a more concrete or fixed way. Um, she's not looking to subject herself to public scrutiny like that. What she's looking for is music as a vehicle of sociability. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so, um, so her music does just that. It's beautiful sounds, right? It's filled with um, evidence of herself performing with her daughters and her friends. Um, and I think when we meet the music on that on those terms and sort of appreciate the way that she meanders in these beautiful sounds, especially with that wonderful square piano that I was uh, talking about earlier, you know, we, we can come to a new kind of understanding of what her compositional approach would have been. Now, at the same time, that does not mean that she didn't influence the public sphere. Mm -hmm. So there were many composers and really kind of prominent, significant composers who dedicated music to her. And in their letters of dedication, they actually write not just kind of in, in very broad formulaic terms, but specifically about being in her salon. Um, and one composer, the very famous um, cellist and, and you know, predominantly string composer, Luigi Boccherini, um, Luigi Boccherini dedicated his Opus 5 set of uh, sonatas for violin and keyboard to Madame Brion. Now, as I mentioned, Boccherini is a cellist, and he writes in the letter of dedication to her, I have never before written for the keyboard, and then I heard you. And then I learned how to write for the keyboard, right? So he is crafting these. I think he's not only crafting these pieces with her in mind, but I can imagine, I think it doesn't take too much of a kind of stretch of the imagination to envision her, him bringing these pieces to her salon and having her sight read them mm -hmm. and play through them with him 
mm-hmm. and say, you know what, this doesn't really work. Or, wow, you should really try this thing because listen to what the instrument can do if you if you do X, Y, or Z, right? And him saying, oh, now I get it, right? So I think that the salon could, in, in those kinds of cases, become a site of collaborative authorship. Mm-hmm. So she's not just the patron who sits aloof and, you know, kind of um, receives a gift of music in a passive way, mm-hmm. or even someone who provides just financial support, which I imagine that she did, uh, in order to underwrite the cost of publication. But more than that, she's becoming someone whose musical values mm-hmm. and whose even her keyboard technique come to infuse these pieces by Boccherini, which then get published and circulate all over Europe and America. Um, so she's entering the public sphere via the salon. Sure. And instead of this supporting role as the solonier, as someone who provides the space for male genius to play out, we right. see someone who's actively engaged in forming what will later be taken as male genius. Yes, right. yes. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that even that notion of of genius is such an anachronistic idea when we think about, you know, the 18th century. Yes, of course, there are lots of debates going on in this period about what genius looks like. But our understanding, especially in music, um, is so heavily shaped by the reception of Beethoven, Mozart, Mm -hmm. Haydn as, you know, these kind of geniuses of the 18th century, when again, in their lifetimes, Haydn and Mozart frequented salons, right? They, they found the salon to be an important platform for their professional agency, right? And the furthering of their careers. Um, So, and, and they're interacting with women. I mean, Mozart had many, many um, female patrons and female students uh, and he wrote for them and he played with them. We know, for example, that um, in the 1780s in Vienna, he frequented the salon of um, another of the salonier whom I write about, Mariana Martinez, and they played keyboard duets together, right? They sat down at the keyboard together mm-hmm. and and played forehands. Um, and that was an important salon practice that's based in like, well, we have one keyboard instrument here. Um, and we have two keyboardists, and this is all about sociability and conversation. So let's have a conversation at the instrument. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, Madame Brion also wrote not only keyboard duets, but also keyboard trios. She had in her salon an English piano, a German piano, and a French harpsichord. Um, and she had, she was her and her two daughters, so they would sometimes play trios together. The trios are like, are they're very um, kind of uh, simple, clearly didactic pieces. Um, and, uh, you know, they need to be understood in that in that way. Um, but this is clearly an important performance practice that's part of the, the lives of a number of Salonier. That's also because women were so heavily associated with with the keyboard above all. Mm-hmm. Right? They played keyboards, they played harp, they would sing. But for many, um, for many women, um, the idea of playing a flute or mm-hmm. a violin uh, was it was sort of off limits by uh, by just social convention. Um, it, it was unusual for women to play, not to say that they didn't, but it was more mm-hmm. uh, it was more common for them to play keyboards and harps and to sing. Yeah, okay, uh, that that I that I 
isn't uh, that I did not know. And I have to rethink <laughs> this world, right? And I'm rethinking, like you, you also mentioned ephemera, and I'm rethinking too, like this idea that a lot of what happened in these spaces is dis- has disappeared forever. Yeah. We'll never know, but we will. You do, right? We do <laughs> see it. Well, we, I mean, we can try, right? We could try to, to reconstruct um, and to deal, I think to deal with the sources on their own terms, mm-hmm. I think is a very important thing. So just once more on Madame Brion, um, you know, her manuscripts were acquired by the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia in the 1950s. And they've been looked at a few times and, you know, there've been a handful of concerts um, where that that sort of try to try to reconstruct and and revive some of that some of that music, but otherwise they just have not been taken seriously. Mm-hmm. They've really sort of lain almost untouched just for decades, and I think that that speaks to you know the the kind of values of past generations. Not just that she's a woman composer and therefore nobody wants to engage with her music, but that it, we have to be able to meet this music on its own terms and not not sort of judge it against a Beethoven symphony. It's a very mm-hmm. very different kind of musical utterance. At the same time, I will say that there are loads of really interesting compositions by Mariana Martinez um, that do involve a full orchestra, um, you know, these wonderful concert arias that that require very advanced vocal technique um, that are almost also completely unknown, um, just un- untouched. And it's it's very hard for me to wrap my head around why why that might be. Um, but it was a lot of fun for me to be able to work with those sources and um, yeah, and think about how they sound and what they mean. So let's move on to Mariana Martinez. What is it like you you use her? I think the title, I don't have it right in front of me, but something um, Mariana Martinez and the cultivation of skill. Right. What is what do you want her to tell us? What do we <laughs> so again, just another fascinating, um, fascinating case. <clears throat> so Mariana Martinez, um, her family history is really interesting. Her connection to um, professional poets, musicians, composers, very interesting. And her kind of social trajectory is very interesting. So, you know, in contrast to Madame Brion, who I think had to kind of adopt this aesthetic of ease, um, aesthetic of like effortlessness, um, and therefore wasn't engaging with really, really complex musical composition. Mariana Martinez did sort of, she trained very carefully. She studied with um, very serious composers in the Neapolitan operatic tradition, mm-hmm. right? She was born in Vienna, but her family heritage is from uh, from Naples and even before then from Spain. Um, so, so she's linking herself to um, the very popular Neapolitan idiom of opera and vocal music. In addition to that, though, her family was connected to the, um, the one of the most important Italian poets of the 18th century, Pietro Metastasio, um, who was the most widely set librettist of opera librettos um, in, in the 18th century. Many, many composers um, set his, his librettos to music. Um, the family actually, the Martinez family actually shared an apartment with Metastasio um, in Vienna. 
um, for decades. And it's it's not entirely clear what that was all about. It may have been that there was a um, uh, perhaps an, an intimate relationship between Metastasio and Mariana's father. But whatever the case, um, you know, she was really mentored by him. Mm-hmm. She almost became, um, you know, I, I think other people have looked at her and said, well, she's she's just being kind of subjected to she's almost like a, an avatar for Metastasio. She doesn't she never sort of gets her own agency or is never credited with, um, with having her own agency. And I think actually that that's not correct. I think that um, that. They, they developed a very carefully crafted um, uh, and productive collaborative relationship mm-hmm. where um, he was able to kind of guide her education um, and sort of cultivate her, help her cultivate her social standing um, so that even though she was, um, she was a composer and was widely known as a composer, she was very careful not to publish too much and not to publish very difficult or complex music, and instead to use the salon or her right her uh, this liminal space between mm-hmm. public and private in her home to present herself musically, and that meant both to converse about music with visitors and dignitaries, and to host other people playing music, and to perform herself in her salon. Mm-hmm. Um, so. While other women composers in her orbit were actually, you know, they, they were sort of publicly derided and chastised. And um, there was a lot of outrage about the fact that they were putting themselves out there in public. Mariana Martinez basically avoided those kinds of, um, you know, the, the, those kinds of judgments because she used the salon very strategically. Mm-hmm. And she and Metastasio were very careful about crafting her persona as one that wouldn't be too much out there in the public, um, but that that still kind of benefited both of them. This is a theme we keep coming back to, right? The idea of defining, we define the Enlightenment as something that only meant to. We define the salons as places where these happen. We de- like we're de- we, modern, moderns are defining a world that they can understand, but where we're seeing instead these liminal spaces where the actors involved are creating a world they can make sense of, right? Are creating right. a space for their own expression. Exactly. Right? Where, exactly. They, where they can collect, where they can create, where they can collaborate, like in a space that's just really, um, you know, kind of, that's a, it's a, that is a nicer way to think about it, right? That is, I prefer this <laughs> yes. history. I prefer an idea where I'm seeing, where we're seeing uh, women in particular able to exercise their agency. Yeah. And it, and it really does, I know I've already said this, but it really does make us rethink kind of our ideas about enlightenment. Um, well, that, that, that would be very, that would be great to, to, <laughs> to help, to help people kind of rethink these things. Mm-hmm. I also have to say that, you know, I, I think I'm, consciously and proudly taking a feminist approach here, right? And when I say that, I mean, um, you know, not that I'm coming in with an agenda of my own, although, you know, all scholars come in with our own baggage. Mm -hmm. But what I'm trying to understand is both what the limitations were on these women that were imposed from, you know, outside forces, about which I could say a little bit more in a moment, and also how they worked around those limitations to still be expressive uh, and independent and exercise agency, um, 
those, those that's the kind of tension that really fascinates me. So the case of um, the Salon of Angelica Kaufmann in, in Rome is one um, that I think sort of displays this really in a, um, an interesting way. So in the, in the chapter on Kaufmann, I'm, I'm writing not only about her, but about these women improvisers um, mm-hmm. who appeared and performed in her salon in Rome. Um, so they were, they were poets and singers and musicians um, who were, they, they, they were these poetic improvisers who had to be able to extemporize on any subject. Like Angelica Kaufmann, these other women, and I'm including um, especially Teresa Bandettini and um, Fortunata Fantastici, these two women whom whom Angelica Kaufmann painted, she painted beautiful portraits of them in the 1790s um, and really seems to have shared a, a friendship with them. All three of them were basically unable to get formal training in their art. Like all women, they were excluded from going to school Right, which is, you know, I think today still something we really need to grapple with. How did these women, how did Angelica Kaufmann become a history painter of all things, which, mm-hmm. which requires, you know, knowledge of languages and history and, you know, philosophy and sort of all sorts of fields that she would have had to self-educate in, as well as, right, for most, um, for most history painters, they had to be able to study the male figure in the nude, which she was not allowed to do, right? And then for the, the same is true of these two um, women improvisers, Bandettini and Fantastici, who had to be able to improvise on literally any subject. And there are long lists of these subjects that are um, that are outlined in descriptions of what they and other women improvisers did. They had to learn theology and history and philosophy and the sciences, all the sciences. Um, they had to sort of, you know, be in command of, of, you know, vast quantities, thousands of years of literature so that they would be able to refer to that literature in their improvisations. And they had to do it all while playing the violin or singing. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right? Like, right. you know, dancing, yeah. dancing backwards in heels, right? So one, so the strategy that all three women used, which I think was widespread, um, is that they cast themselves as muses, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They had to, so they had to get an education. They had to work hard, but in order to avoid being considered kind of freaks of nature or being attacked mm-hmm for being overly, you know, audacious in attaining an education, they portrayed themselves as channeling the ancient muses, which allowed them, it sort of gave them the cover that they needed. You know, they're, they're not, they're not these modern working women who are doing it all. They're actually, you know, channeling Sappho. They're, they're like the modern oracles of Sappho and descriptions of the, the performances of these women improvisers, you know, it, it, it was very much like a, a kind of um, dramatic um, embodiment of these ancient muses. They would they would act as if they're almost in a trance, and they would invoke the great name of God or of the ancient muse, and they would start slowly and then work them up into a kind of friend, work themselves up into a kind of frenzy where they're singing and improvising, and um, and their audiences are astounded. And all of this happens in the context of the salon because they have to be able to interact with their audience, right? The whole art of improvisation depends upon 
one of the audience members or one of the visitors to the salon proposing a topic and saying, can you improvise on the history of X? And they have to be able to do it. So that sociability is actually key to what they're doing. But I, I think that, you know, just looking at some of the literature on the way that that muse trope, the trope of the woman mm-hmm. artist as muse has been understood in the last 30 years, let's say, a lot of people say, well, that's just men. The men were imposing that trope on those women. No, no. In many cases, the women themselves are adopting the trope of the muse because it gave them the excuse that they needed to appear educated. Right. It gives them a a legitimate way to exercise power. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. This is delightful. What a great talk, great book. And I've taken up enough of your time already. And so um, I just want to wrap this up. I have just one more question. So um, what are you working on now? What's next? (laughs) Um, Something next, right? Well, one really nice thing that's coming out of this project is that I'm working with um, another colleague, Jackie Avila from the University of Tennessee, Um, to edit a new history of women and musical salons Mm -hmm. from the late 16th century through the present. Um, So that is a project that's in the works. We're really excited that that book is under contract with Cambridge University Press and will be out. It won't be out anytime soon um, because the chapters haven't been written yet, but we are, um, we're really excited to to see that take shape. Um, And for myself, I've actually been spending some time um, working on Music of uh, music and letters, really, of uh, the Black British writer and composer Ignatius Sancho, um, who was apparently the first Black person to publish his original musical compositions. So I'm I've been writing, you know, some kind of article, some articles on on Sancho and his music, and also um, leading an interdisciplinary research group here at Rutgers that is thinking about the arts in the mm-hmm. worldview of and the worldview and practice of Ignatius Sancho. So that's what I'm up to these days. That is fantastic. That sounds very good. I love the space you've made for yourself that you get to play with these really neat ideas and kind of, uh, you. and you all, you get to um, unearth and bring out, you know, these people who have been ignored. So it's pretty Good work. Like, good job. Good work if you can get it, right? Uh, That's great. I also, once again, listeners, remember that this is not just a book. You also get music with this, right? Um, How is that accessible to our listeners? When they can, they purchase your book, they can go to a website? Well, the website is actually um, linked for free. There's no no need to purchase the book in order to to uh, to hear the audio examples. Although, of course, we hope that you'll read the book yes. um, from the University of Chicago Press. So, if you if you can find the book on the University of Chicago Press website, there's a link to the website that has um, all the audio examples. And it's something you haven't heard before. This will be a new <laughs> and exciting soundscape for you, so listeners. So wonderful. All right, Rebecca, thank you so much for taking some time with me today to talk about your book. It's really enjoyable. I thanks so much for writing it, and I. It sounds like it seems like you probably had a good time with it. I had a great time, and it's been a pleasure to speak with you about it. Thank you. <laughs>